0: Hey everybody, this is Ray Patelsch, and this is episode 41 of Have Not Seen This, a weekly in depth look at a much beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out people have not seen. Hope everyone is doing well out there. Uh, Regular listeners will be happy to know I'm back on the wagon or off the wagon or whatever the metaphor is. I'm back to watching some movies again. Last weekend, I watched uh, three movies for upcoming episodes of the podcast, so I'll be getting... My library of upcoming episodes built back up again, as well as a couple other movies that aren't for the podcast that I just want to spend a quick second talking about. Of course, the big one that just about everybody was watching last weekend was Hamilton, which came to Disney Plus, a filmed version of the stage play that was filmed back when it was the original cast. And I've been a Hamilton fan for a really long time. I remember hearing... NPR talking about the unlikely success of this musical and getting the soundtrack for as a Christmas present from, I think my dad and just being absolutely blown away by what I heard. And so I've I've lived and breathed that cast album for several years now, but not gotten the chance to see the stage play. My dad, I should add, did get to see the stage play, that lucky son of a bitch. And uh, it, it's phenomenal to see what that production is like and be able to sit in your living room and watch that. And I, I cannot rave about that presentation and what Lin-Manuel Miranda did with that creation enough. Uh, I, I found it almost rather fitting that I was watching it on the 4th of July in a time that we're having to deal with racial inequality and issues that still exist surrounding that to watch a production of a moment in American history being portrayed by a multicultural cast. There's just something about that that felt right. But the music, the performances, it's all amazing. If you haven't gotten Disney Plus yet, I highly recommend it. It's definitely worth checking it out. Of course, The Mandalorian is on there and is fantastic too, but Hamilton is totally worth getting Disney Plus, if just for the free trial period, so you can check it out. Uh, also checked out The Vast of Night, which is streaming on Amazon, which is also a fantastic film, and it is one of those movies that has suffered because of theaters being closed, so it ended up coming out on streaming instead of going to any theaters, but it also may have benefited from that because it's a small, independent-type film, it's very clearly a low-budget movie, uh, but And I don't want to go into much about what the film is about, but it it is also quite fantastic and worth checking out. If you love the old Twilight Zone, Outer Limits kind of feel, uh, this is that in a 90-minute format. But it doesn't feel like it's in a 90 minute format. It goes pretty quickly. And one of the things I absolutely loved about it, I am a sucker for long single shots that let the actors really play the scene up and, and puts that power in the actor's hands. And there are several Really extended long camera takes in this, uh, including one on the young actress in it that's like nine minutes long as she's doing some tasks. And, but you're getting a lot of characterization through that. So I highly recommend checking out The Vast of Night. I also give a shout out to Double Edge Double Bill. You know, I've had their hosts on my show and I've been on that podcast a couple of times. Their episode this week uh, talks about The Vast of Night, and I agree with a lot of the things that they talk about with it. So if you have have seen The Vast of Night and want to hear an interesting conversation about it, go check out their podcast. If you haven't seen it and you have Amazon, I highly recommend The Vast of Night as well. Uh, the other thing I wanted to chat about before I get into the show is something I've been meaning to talk about on and off for the last, you know, 30 some episodes, and that is Letterboxed. Uh, A lot of the other podcasters that I listen to have Letterboxed accounts set up, and I I set one up way back in, like, episode 10 or 11, and then didn't talk about it, and then promptly put it down, but I'm trying to get back into entering movies on that. So if you want to follow me on Letterboxd, I could use some friends there. Uh, I'm there as Hess, that's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S, which is my username on Twitter and everywhere else as well. But uh, really having fun going through and seeing what some of my friends have rated... Movies because you always have that difference of opinion with some people, and you can look at a movie that you absolutely love and go, Wait, how did you only give this three stars? You know? So if you keep track of your movies through Letterboxd, go add me as a friend. Again, Town Hess. Looking back at last week's movie, Uh, which was the Warcraft adaptation, had a really good time talking about that movie. And I had planned for the Friday Inquiry Question to be about video game adaptations on the big screen, because we know we have seen quite a few of those, and we know they tend not to be very good. But then a conversation kind of broke out between me and past guest Alex Kunkka, uh, who was, you know, Luke's brother, who Luke was on the show last week, And and we started talking about comments I had made about Ben Foster and what an impressive actor Ben Foster is. And so instead, I I turned the conversation that direction. And so last week's Friday inquiry, which I ask on social media each week, was, what is your favorite Ben Foster performance? Uh, A lot of former guests and friends chiming in with their opinions. And and you'll see a trend here really quickly with the answers. Uh, Thomas Mariani said, gotta be the 310 to Yuma remake, one of the best modern Western villains of the 21st century. Adam Thomas said either Alpha Dog, 30 Days of Night, or Hell or High Water. Brian Ward and Chris Eklund both chimed in with 310 to Yuma. Uh, Tina Blankenship said his role in 30 Days of Night is so memorable, but I needed some more films with him in the lead role. Hostage was good, too. Price Ash said Charlie Prince in 310 to Yuma. He's an incredible actor. Chris Talent over on Twitter said 310 to Yuma. James Rodriguez, leave it to James Rodriguez, who introduced me to the movie Boy. Leave it to James to bring up another movie that I I don't think I've really heard of and nobody else is talking about. He said, Leave No Trace, a quiet performance which says so much. Uh, Alex Kunkka said, 310 to Yuma, loyal, scary, good with a gun. And Old Man Alski said Pandorum, but chimed in with responses to Kunkka and Chris saying, I gotta check out 310 to Yuma. So there's kind of this universal, everybody loves him in 310 to Yuma, which I absolutely admit he's phenomenal in that movie. It's been a long time since I've seen it, and I probably need to revisit it again, because I remember really liking it, and specifically really liking him. Uh, we talked about Pandorum last week. I, I haven't seen that. Uh, obviously, Leave No Trace I haven't seen, since so I just made a big deal about that. And I have to admit, I haven't seen 30 Days of Night, so I missing some of ben foster's filmography from my viewing experience but i love him in 310 to yuma alpha dog he was quite good in uh, hell or high water i absolutely love him in i think that was a fantastic movie and and i gotta agree with tina hostage was good too it's not a brilliant movie but his performance in it is pretty good so again, each week on Fridays, I try to post a question related to that week's movie on Twitter we're at have not seen this, on Facebook, where at have not seen this podcast, Join the community, chime in with your answers to each week's Friday inquiry. This week, we're turning to a new genre that we haven't really tackled on this show before, and that is the Western. And it comes from a very unlikely source to be tackling a Western, and that is my friend Jeff Moore, who I used to co-host the Gruesome Magazine podcast with back when I started getting back into podcasting a couple of years ago. I was with them for like six, eight months, and each week we would look at new horror movie releases. And so I know Jeff is a horror guy, but he decided to bring a Western to the show instead. And that is 1970s Monty Walsh. Now, don't confuse that with the 2003 Tom Selleck version of Monty Walsh like I did, which is something we'll discuss on the podcast. But there's Jeff and I have talked about doing this movie for several months and unfortunately I made a mistake that caused us to delay talking about it and then of course as I said last week I kind of shut down on watching new movies for a while but I'm back in it now and the our conversation about Monty Walsh is a lot of fun uh we do talk about the 2003 version as well but most of our focus is on the 1970 version of Monty Walsh so here we go with our conversation with Jeff Moore from Gruesome Magazine. So how you been?
1: Good. How about yourself? I saw you, uh, congratulations on, uh, your new certification or recertification or relicensing or whatever.
0: (laughs) Yeah, thanks. I don't know that it's going to lead to a job as fast as I would like, but, uh, it's a step in the right direction at least. Yeah.
1: You know, open doors.
0: So uh, my understanding is it's it's pretty much a requirement of podcasts these days that I have to ask, how's your quarantine going? So how have you been doing through all of quarantine?
1: Uh, pretty good. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm retired, so I don't have to go too many places. You know, about the only time I leave the house is for groceries. Um, went to a couple of Little League baseball games before they canceled the season. But other than that, doing pretty good, doing doing all the stuff we're supposed to. Cause, cause we're old folks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish you lived closer to me because watching, you know, your posts pop up on my Facebook uh, timeline or whatever they call it these days. Um, you, you're really uh-huh. keeping in touch with developments and, you know, kind of translating the news or the double speak that's coming from government or that kind of stuff. I mean, you really seem like you're dedicated to making sure information is getting out there to your friends and is understandable.
1: Yeah, well, I I do have a basic, a little bit better than average understanding of math and statistics. But the problem is our governor has a uh, website designed to give the appearance of being transparent while not being transparent. So you got to dig. You really got to dig and look at stuff hard and, and try to figure out what are they hiding and why are they hiding it. So
0: yeah, well, and as I said, I mean, I I, I kind of wish you lived nearer to me, so I was getting that information, you know, as relevant to my own area, because <laughs> you're you're really on top of things.
1: <laughs> um, well, I appreciate that. Just trying to spread information. I, I usually don't do bashing stuff. I usually just post information. I I've given up on uh, certain things. <laughs> I don't pretend anymore. But for the most <laughs> part, just trying to provide information.
0: Cool. So, of course, I know you, you know, from doing the the Gruesome Magazine podcast with you. So I've always known you as a horror person. uh, And I know you do several podcasts over there that are horror related. Is horror your primary genre or are are you more eclectic than I thought? Because you didn't pick a horror movie for the show. (laughs) No,
1: I didn't. Uh, So I grew up. uh, My dad was a big Western fan. So I I grew up seen Westerns. And uh, that was, if they took us to a movie, 90% chance, my parents, if they took us to a movie, it was a 90% chance it was going to be a Western or a musical. My mom was a music teacher. So those were the two, those were the two options. But I loved horror because I'd come home from school and there was a a movie on at four o'clock in the afternoon on weekdays. And they would have various topic weeks. So there'd be like science fiction week and horror week and monster week and stuff like that. And I those I love. So I saw all those 50s and uh, early 60s uh, monster creature features, uh, alien invasion, all those things. Um, and that that's what really got me going. I had no support in loving horror from my parents because they were totally anti They wouldn't let me watch The Twilight Zone when I was a kid, and I was was there when it was live, you know, so uh, the minute it started playing in reruns, I started watching it, so it, it, you know, maybe that was it, because it was seen as a forbidden fruit, and over the years, you know, I had intermittent amount of time to uh, delve into horror, depending on family and that kind of stuff, but the last 10 years or so, I'd say uh, the job that I had, I was driving all over the state of Iowa. And started to find podcasts, and then there was more and more movies available streaming, and that's when I really dive, really, really dived back into it. So, trying to cover a lot of ground now over the last uh, five to ten years. Also, I'm a big fan of uh, film noir from the uh, 40s and 50s. Ooh. But mostly horror. I, I'd say, you know, 80% of the stuff I watch is horror.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I, I certainly enjoyed getting to talk horror movies with you when I was a part of Gruesome Magazine. And I'd, like something popped up on my Facebook feed like yesterday, where I guess it was a movie we had covered and I hadn't watched in time for the show, but I watched it because you recommended it because the po- the post was a, a poster for the movie. And my comment that I, when I post it was when Jeff Moore recommends a movie, he knows what the hell he's talking about. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, yeah, uh, I, I think we we were searching. We were just missing a movie, and we were searching for it. And uh, I just happened to find that on. I don't even remember what it was on Netflix or Amazon. Um, and I think it wasn't it. Was it Caliber?
0: It was. Yes. Yeah. yeah
1: I, I that was. I had to talk until it popped up to the surface. (laughs) But we'll see about this one.
0: (laughs) Well, and and that was part of the fun of doing that podcast was every week was a, well, we'll see what. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, And they have, you know, it's too bad because. We we've developed more contacts over the last, you know, what, two and a half years. So now we're getting better movies. So, (laughs) (laughs) Not not as many of the uh, lower echelon, I guess.
0: Gotcha. So so the podcast is called Have Not Seen This, uh, where we talk about movies, you know, we're surprised people haven't seen or movies we're passionate about that we wish other people have seen. What are your have not seen this movies? What are movies that people are surprised when they find out you haven't seen? Uh, well, there's <laughs> there's
1: actually a lot of horror movies that I haven't seen in the 80s and 90s. I'm not a big franchise guy, so I'm trying to think if there's any. I've seen all the Halloween movies, but when it comes to Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm trying to think of the other any other ones right off the top of my head. But I've only I, I see like the first couple, and then the, it's sort of like been there, done that, you know. I'll go back and watch them when I when I want to, but I'm looking to be scared and surprised, and they become less surprising and more a caricature of themselves. It seems like so, you know, some of those later movies in uh, the franchise type flicks and horror.
0: Yeah. No, that's actually one of the things I've always liked about the Nightmare on Elm Street movies is it felt like the further they got, the more they just kind of embraced becoming a caricature of what they were. Like they they really embraced kind of the corniness of it. (laughs) But uh, surprise, you know, one of those have not seen this moments. I've never seen a Friday the 13th movie, not a single one of them.
1: Oh, there you go. There you go. I watched the first one, and I believe I watched the second one, but I haven't, well, I did watch uh, whichever one is takes place in space. I think that's like number 10, maybe, just because somebody said it was a hoot, <laughs> so I watched it, and it was, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, those are the main ones. Otherwise, most big horror movies, because I really did kind of. Uh, miss the the 80s and the 90s with my kids growing up and working and that kind of stuff. Uh, even though there was video stores, I I didn't rent the low rent stuff because I didn't. I don't know. I was my parents' child, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> didn't, didn't want to expose my kids to that. that but anyway, now I do. Now I watch him with my grandson. <laughs> my
0: my kid is 11 and I'm deciding which, how can I start introducing him to horror as a genre without uh, spending too many nights with him having nightmares or, or, you know, damaging his psyche or anything like that. It, it's a, it's a tricky road to walk.
1: <laughs> uh, it is, it is. And it's hard. Uh, this this one grandson we watched Insidious I think it was the first one and I remember thinking oh it's not that bad you know it's not oh. and I'm thinking gore and sex but scared the shit out of him. and he said there was one point where he jumped up and ran out of yeah the room. sure <laughs> and afterwards I said I said. I said, that was an error in judgment, wasn't it? We shouldn't have watched that. Oh, no, it was great. You know? <laughs> so I don't know. He's, he is still a horror <laughs> fan, and he's 16 now. So.
0: Yeah, that one's a little more psychological than gore or sex. But yeah, I totally, uh, I can i can see where that mistake would be made. <laughs>
1: I wasn't, wasn't thinking
0: clearly. All right, well, let's turn our focus to Monty Walsh, which is your pick for this week, which is not a horror movie, but a Western.
1: not. It is a Western.
0: (laughs) Directed by William A. Fraker. Written by Lucas Heller and David Zelig Goodman. Based on the novel by Jack Schaefer. Starring Lee Marvin, Gene Murrow, Jack Palance, Mitchell Ryan, and Jim Davis.
1: Monty Walsh, cowboy. Born in 1843. Died when he had to. Don't ask if he was real, because he was as real as the West. We couldn't get work. A lot of good boys can't get work. If I was starving, I couldn't rustle. Well, you ain't. You're getting your three squares every day. It ain't like we was rustling many better we know. Makes no difference. They belong to Slash Y. Slash Y? Stop planning about something that ain't anymore.
0: The kind of life you're talking about is dead. Snow buried it last winter.
1: It ain't dead. As long as there's one cowboy taking care of one cow,
0: it ain't dead.
1: Dumb egg sucking. Nobody gets to be a cowboy forever. There's gonna be
0: So the question I always start with is, how do you describe this movie to someone who has not seen it? Because, you know, this is Westerns. I I don't think, in fact, I I had never even heard of this movie until you introduced me to it. Uh, When I think classic Westerns, I think like, you know, The Searchers or True Grit or, you know, classic like John Wayne type stuff. So how do you introduce this movie to someone who hasn't seen it?
1: I guess I tell people that it's sort of a, uh, a grand vision of the end of the cowboy life told in sort of a, in an episodic format, uh, establishing really, you know, that, that's pretty much it, you know. And I, and I also go, I go big on the Lee Marvin and Jack Palance <laughs> thing because they're great in this, I think. But the cinematography is great. I, I just, I this is one of those movies. I love everything about. So what that you know, I, I got to stop talking right now. So,
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. So, so why out of all the movies that are out there, especially if you're going to leave the horror genre and go to westerns, why was this your choice? Well,
1: mainly because a lot of people haven't heard about it. It wasn't a big blockbuster, um, and I, I think it's a. I just, I think it's a really good movie. So I tell people about it all the time if I if I make a ten a top ten of my movies through history, this one always goes on it and and I just think about movies that I've watched the most times. And I've watched I can't tell you how many times I watched this. I bought I owned a VHS, I own the D V D, and I now own a Kino Lorber Blu-ray.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> Meanwhile, I had to scrape together to find a copy. <laughs> so what is your history with this movie? Like, when did you first see it? I
1: first saw this in the theater. I went to see it in the theater with a friend of mine. Wow. I loved it. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was not quite graduated from high school when this came out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, I I always forget you're a little older than I think you are.
1: <laughs> I just act young. I act uh, immature.
0: <laughs> what made you fall in love with this movie?
1: The I again, I'm just going to say I love everything about it. The when I go through, it's one of those things where I went to this movie and I thought this is a great movie. And then when I start looking at the people that are in it, they have done tons of other great movies that I loved. So I think it's sort of the things where all the pieces fit together to make Something greater than the whole. I love the starting. You know, the the music is by John Barry, who is an Oscar winner. The uh, Cass Elliot sang the uh, theme song, the intro song. Uh, the the uh, director, though, this was his first directing role. William Fraker. He has six Oscar nominations for for uh, cinematography, which you can tell by the movie that a cinematographer directed this movie or there's a good cinematographer involved uh and i think that the actual cinematographer in this film was somebody who was a uh you know sort of lead camera operator for fraker when he was dp or cinematographer so just it's the music just fits perfectly i love these little episodic things that kind of build up the We start off with a scene of Jack Palance and Lee Marvin as Monty Walsh and his buddy Chet Rollins hunting wolf for pelts. And and that starts to develop that sort of bond because they're jabbing each other back and forth, right? Then they ride back into town to join up with the uh, uh, ranch that they've always worked for. And find out it's no longer around. Now they've got to go work for another ranch that's owned by a big corporation, and there's fewer people there, and the town is starting to die. There's this, there's these sort of uh, scenes that are designed, I think, to to give the feel of what it was like to live there. And I like it because it's realistic. You know, when they're sitting in the bunkhouse eating, there's no spare room in there. You know, or in the uh, in the uh, uh, what do you want to call it dining dining room. Uh, there's the no spare off, room yeah. you can't walk around the guys while they're eating and uh, that's the way stuff was then yeah the mess missile yeah uh so the bunkhouse is ratty looking mattresses and and slap boards and and you know stained pillows and stuff like that i mean I, I just i just feel like that's realistic lots of dust lots of dust in this movie so it wasn't like clean cowboys you know it wasn't like they were covered with dust, their hair grew, their sideburns got bushy, you know, their beards grew till they got into town, you know, every few months or something. So I, I, I don't know, for me, I just love the feel of it. It's very nostalgic for me, sort of a, sort of a cap off of all the Westerns that came before it as to, uh, you know, what happened to that way of life.
0: And it's interesting you you mentioned that about what happened to that way of life because this comes out in 1970. Several other Westerns around that same time period are kind of doing the same thing, looking at the death of the cowboy lifestyle. And it's also kind of marking the cinematic end of the age of Westerns. Why do you think that became such a fixation for Hollywood at the time period?
1: I don't really know, except those things go in cycles. So... Back then, 50s and 60s, when TV was kicking in, there were a ton of Westerns on in the 50s and 60s. I mean, you couldn't hardly... There was Westerns on multiple channels in every time slot, I think. <laughs> then you get up to late 60s and the 70s, and they kind of turn into detective shows. You know, not not very many Westerns at all on television. And I, and I, I just think that that's sort of... I don't know if it's because they wear it out. I don't know if it's a time gone past because, you know, some Westerns you, you can get the feel that, oh, it would have been great to live that way. But when you really think about it, you know, <laughs> it, it really sucked. You know, like I, here I'm sitting in my air-conditioned house with uh, my internet and, and my big TV and all that stuff. And um, they're, you know, that's another thing that I liked about this is in a lot of the movie they're sweat they're sweaty and dirty you know cuz that's the way it would have been that's yeah so i saw it, why did why did that stuff die out i think i think it just kind of runs its course i think it, there's a a romance going on you had a this major star like john wayne that was almost you know you could throw the whole genre on his shoulders and keep it running through the 60s and it wasn't and and his is also one of those last ones the shootist is, is another one of my favorites the last film that john wayne made before he died and I think that's later 70s, a little bit later. Anyway, just I never really thought about it. So I'm just shooting my mouth off. Oh,
0: no, it's all good, man. Uh, so, again, I hadn't heard of the movie until you brought it up, you know, as as a film for the show. It is popular. It sits at 88 percent at Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, as usual, I pulled in a positive and a negative review. Uh, Just to kind of give us some discussion points, Uh, again, they kind of hit on some things that I liked or didn't like about it, Um, although probably not so much true about the negative one. The positive review comes from Roger Ebert, even in 1970. Uh, He wrote, the Wild Bunch and the Professionals, each in its own way, were about the shortage of work for gunslingers. They suggested that violence had gone out of style in the West, that a gun on the hip was no longer needed in polite society. The Wild Bunch seemed to seek death almost suicidally in the last half of that great movie. They'd lived by the gun, and they had to die by it. Ironically, because they knew no other way to make a living. Monty Walsh is set at the same psychological moment in the West, but it takes a quieter and, on the whole, more thoughtful approach. There's a fair amount of gunplay, yes, and Marvin has a well-staged action scene where he tries to tame a Bronco and succeeds in destroying half a town. But mostly the movie sticks close to ordinary life to the camaraderie of the bunkhouse and the range to the everyday life of the working cowboy and to the shy and beautiful love between the cowboy and the prostitute. This movie is rough but it is almost always tender. So before I move to the negative any thoughts on what Ebert says? Yeah, I think that's a good
1: that's a good description and uh that that fits a lot of what I think about it. I I was sort of paying a little more attention to the structure and I'd say you're about halfway into the movie before something drastic happens up until then it's just these tender moments right of how they get along how they're living together uh uh, some of the guys get laid off but then we also see on what do they do you know as the cowboys are are dying we see uh one guy gets married to the, the hardware widow.
0: <laughs>
1: one guy uh joins a couple of the guys to rob banks and rustle cattle. Another guy goes and he's I don't know exactly what he's doing. He's he's sweeping up a shop somewhere or, or roadhouse just to have some place to uh stay warm and eat.
0: I think he's working at the railroad station.
1: Oh, maybe that's it. Maybe that was it. Um but there are not a lot of people in this movie outside the the Cowboys and a couple of bar scenes.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, let me bring in the negative review. Uh, you've already said so many things I want to talk about, but just in the, this, the uh, fairness of equality here, the negative review comes from Tony Mastriani from the Cleveland press and he wrote Monty Walsh had possibilities that never were realized. It has the appropriate unprettied scenery, the ramshackle town with muddy streets, the bare bleak saloon, the dusty gritty working conditions, the soiled grimy bunkhouse, the men are bearded and grubby, the women look drawn and tired. It tries so hard to be honest that it finally gets very pretentious and dull. It's as though someone forgot that atmosphere wasn't enough, that there has to be a story. And then because the filmmakers realized it was dull, they livened it up with cliches from more conventional Westerns. There's a saloon fight and a bunkhouse brawl and a chase and even a final gun down the last low key and unconvincing.
1: I could see. uh, huh? So if the fact that this is based on a Jack Shafer book somewhat belies the idea that they, decided it was too dull and threw this other stuff in (laughs) that stuff is in the book the one thing i noticed watching it this time though was and maybe it's because i'm getting older and i've watched so many more movies over the last few years but lee marvin has like a dozen sort of zinger lines that can sound pretty cliched unless i'm in the right mood sometimes i think they sound great but he's always just saying you know the uh the guy that's that's uh, riding wire and uh, is known as Joe Hooker is riding his horse down, and they're going. He's not going to make it. He don't want to make it. You know that. Those are the lines. He's got those like he he has the the uh, the response line for everything. That's sort of the shut everybody up line. You know this is this is the final quote or the final statement.
0: Right, right. So, but so I guess it sounds like you're saying whether it comes across as cliched or entertaining is really kind of dependent upon what mood you're in when you're watching it.
1: Yeah. I think maybe it's how, how long it's been since I saw the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched it, you know, I don't know when we started talking about doing this a month or so ago, maybe. So now I've just watched it again. I usually, I frequently watch it.
0: That was three months ago.
1: <laughs> oh, was it three months ago? All right. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. You know, most of the time I love it. I love Lee Martin. Today it rang a little cliche and that may be the first time it's done that for me. And I could see that as a criticism by some people.
0: Now, have you read the Jack Schaefer novel that it's based upon?
1: I did. Uh, and, and actually my memory of it is that it's a lot like the movie and that it's a series of, oh, I don't know, kind of like Stephen King's, the gunslinger, you know, the the original Gunslinger was, uh, what, I think maybe five novellas that were sold separately and then put together as a book. These are like sort of separate little vignettes or scenes almost that are put together into a book. It's not like a, this started and then they did this and then they did that. and then they. It's just you know sort of these things that are happening to them and, and you get an idea of what's going on. It's been a long, long time, and I've been thinking now since we were going to do this that I should go back and read it reread it <laughs> well
0: the the reason i ask is because my understanding from some of the research i did on the movie is that it's very loosely based on the book it's not necessarily very true to the book but and you know this but for the listener's sake part of the reason it's been several months since we first started talking about this is i, I sat down and watched this a couple of months ago but i watched the wrong version there was a remake made for TV <sighs> with Tom Selleck and a really all-star cast. Uh, and, and that's the version I watched. But a lot of those lines that you're talking about that Lee Marvin has, kind of those buttons to the ends of scenes or those comebacks, are present in the, the made-for-TV adaptation as well. So it's almost as if if this isn't true to the book, then neither is the TV adaptation, which is then another question of why did they bother remaking this?
1: Yeah, I wondered about that. I kind of wondered if maybe this wasn't like one of Tom Selleck's favorites and he wanted to do it or some, I don't, I don't know why they did it. To me, it's one of those, for me, it's like, why remake the perfect movie? Unless you're trying to get it more exposure in some way. But I really disliked the, the Tom Selleck version. And I know that a lot of it is the same, but it just doesn't, doesn't work for me. And I don't know if it's because Tom Selleck's not Lee Marvin or Keith Carradine isn't Jack Palance. They're they're both good actors in their own right, you know, doing their own thing. But I just I don't know. I'm uh, Lee Marvin and Jack Palance and Jim Davis. Those guys are so fixated in that movie for me.
0: No, and and I think you you hit it on the head there because when I was you know again my in, introduction because I of my mistake my introduction was the Tom Selleck version, and when I was watching this there's a lot more heart to Lee Marvin's performance than Tom Selleck has in his version. And I I buy this silver haired Lee Marvin as an aging cowboy a lot more than I bought Tom Selleck as it. And also the the rapport between Lee Marvin and Jack Palance just I, I even wrote down in my notes that they just they they feel like these playful bros as mm-hmm. opposed to two cowboys towards the end of their tenure. You know, there's just there's there's something about them that they're playful with each other. You can tell that they've had each other's backs for a really long time, and they that that just shows up on the screen. I, I agree,
1: I agree completely, and I I do really need to go back and look at the book because um, my memory of the book is it's pretty long, and I don't remember being you know like disappointed and going, well, this isn't anything like it, or they really screwed this up when they did the movie, but I also think, you know, in a movie, you can't, you know, if you got a 400 page book, you know, how much of that's going to be in the movie? It, it's definitely longer than yeah. Shane. Cause I think it's, again, it's sort of this collection of, uh, it's almost like a collection of short stories about the same characters. At least that's my memory of it.
0: Well, and I love that you keep coming back to that because that's, that's how you, said you know when i said how do you introduce someone to this movie that you ca- you you brought that up from the beginning that it is like a collection of, of vignettes and i wish i had known that going into it because i was looking for a movie with an overarching plot and a, you know a beginning a middle and an end and i think telling people up front that this is a series of vignettes it's it's essentially short stories about the character put together with an overall theme is a much better way of selling the movie
1: I failed you. I failed you.
0: <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. But I, I think someone who hears this and knows that going into the, the movie will have a better experience watching it. Like and I obviously I knew that's the way it was when I started up the the proper version, the Lee Marvin version. And so I'd like to say that impacted how I was a lot more entertained this time, but I also just think it has to do with this was a better movie that this, the 1970 version, there's just real heart to it in places that feel lacking. Now, now there were some changes that I, I, I almost liked the Tom Selleck version, like shorty, you know, that there's a background between our main characters and shorty in the Tom Selleck version that isn't there. Yeah. When we first meet shorty in this version, it's when he's doing the shooting practice and they're shooting the stuff out from before he can get to it, which, which I found it just, it changes the relationship. And, and I I liked that, but then when shorty gets fired and they give him the money, it feels a little weird in this version because that relationship isn't the same. If that makes any sense.
1: Well, maybe to a, uh, certain extent to me all the background we really need to know is these guys know each other from somewhere and that he's sort of the hot shot brash one that they kind of poke fun at and that that comes across pretty quickly with that shooting scene yeah and I did just notice something I was looking at the uh, new version or the 2003 version with Tom Selleck and the teleplay uh, co-writer on the teleplay is Robert Parker and Tom Selleck did a bunch of TV movies based on Robert Parker books about a character. I forget the, I think his name might be stone or something, but he's, he's like a ex drunk cop who becomes a police chief in some small coastal town in the Northeast. And then the stories are, you know, typical Robert Parker Spencer type stories, only a different character. So so there's a connection between them is what I'm getting at. And so I don't know why it, it'd be interesting to me to know what started the idea.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it would be interesting. I don't know that I'm that interested in pursuing it because uh. I mean, it, it's funny because that Tom Selleck version has, I, I mean, it has a ridiculously talented cast. I mean, you've, mm-hmm. you've got, as you pointed out, you know, it's Tom Selleck, Keith Carradine. Um, you've got uh, Wallace. Sean shows up at one point. I mean, you've just it's a hellacious cast and some some great uh, Western style actors,
1: Barry Corbin, uh, Isabella Rossellini. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. yeah. Barry Corbin, James Gammon. I mean, you've got some fantastic actors in there, but it just doesn't come together the way that this version does. Uh, and so I'm kind of going to be happy to just pretend that 2003 version doesn't exist from now on. Cause I liked this version.
1: Well, that's kind of the way I watched it again because I, I hated it when I watched it, when it was on TV, cause I, you know, I'm sort of excited to see it. And, uh, that was the beginning of my, uh, beginning of my disillusionment with Tom Sillick. <laughs> <laughs> I think, <laughs> but, um, this one also the original from 1970 has a great, a list of Western character actors, too, that you might not be aware of if you're not, if if you haven't seen a lot of stuff from that era. But almost all those guys were in lots and lots of uh, TV and, and movies, uh, Westerns. I mean, you, you mentioned Jim Davis, Mitchell Ryan, and then the guys that, that played the side characters, G.D. Spradlin, uh, Michael Conrad, who ended up being the, you know, the uh, precinct sergeant in Hill Street Blues. Oh, Bo Hopkins. Right. Uh, So lots of, lots of well-known guys in there.
0: Yeah. See, I'm just not that familiar with Westerns as a whole. It's definitely a shortcoming in my movie knowledge. So I kind of wondered about that. Like were these, you know, those kinds of actors from 1970. uh, And I just don't get it because, you know, I know. You know, I mean, heck, my introduction to Jack Palance was Batman and then City Slickers. You know, right. I, I didn't know his oh, no. varied career until <laughs> within the last 10 years.
1: And, and there's another one of my loves for Jack Palance is he's in a uh, some really great film noirs, as is Lee Marvin in the in the 50s. Uh, Lee Marvin played some really despicable characters in some film noirs. But I was going to bring up this character... Um, Matt Clark who plays Rufus Brady yeah uh, the the guy that gets shot in the crick yeah he's a pretty recognizable guy during during that era I believe uh outlaw Josie Wales I knew he was in outlaw Josie Wales but he's in a lot of other other stuff during that time um, and then the guy that played the doctor is also very recognizable at least at least to me
0: yeah he um, he stood out to me
1: you know sort of uh tending to Martine when she, after she died. Hey, Jen. Hey, Micah. Remember watching the Friends premiere? No, I never saw that. Oh, but remember those first Wu-Tang solo albums that came out? No, I don't. Remember that terrible Frasier theme song? Oh my god. Remember I was sent away from home when I was 16, sent to like the middle of nowhere Montana, therapeutic boarding school, none of this rings a bell? Oh yeah. Join us for I Never Saw That, a podcast about mid-90s pop culture and Montana. What about ER? You saw that though, right? No! No!
0: So so let's talk a little bit about Monty and Martine's relationship, um, or as he calls her, the Countess, because it, it's it's not a prominent part of the story, but yet it's kind of an important part of the story, I think, because he's he's almost willing to give up the cowboy lifestyle for her in some ways.
1: He's trying, you know, and that's that dilemma is, you know, we're always I mean, we go through it all the time, right? People complain about change. You know, the the Walmarts come in and the mom and pops are starting to go out or before it was the malls come in and the, the mom and pops are going out and now the Walmarts are killing the malls and it goes, you can, you can think of all kinds of stuff and it's just, it's change and it isn't going to stay that way. It's going to, it's going to change again. And so I think that's what it was like for them. That's the way they had lived. And for him, being a cowboy was what he was. That's how he identified himself. So for him to do something else was was outside of his thinking. So his relationship with Martine was, I'm a cowboy, you know, so I, I won't be getting married. Um, where on the other hand, his buddy Chet sees the writing on the wall and starts thinking about it. plus uh, I guess there's an opportunity there with the uh, hardware, Widow, (laughs) that's right. Call her, who is another character who's in movies. I'm pretty sure she's in. uh, Is she in Jeremiah Johnson, the uh, the crazy woman out in the plains that he gets the boy from? I
0: don't know the movie, so I wouldn't be able to tell you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you haven't seen Jeremiah Johnson?
0: No, I I told you I'm not very well versed in westerns uh, at all.
1: Well, that's another one with not a lot of uh, not a lot of dialogue. Because this one too, you know, that's one of the things too I like about this is there's a lot of uh, we talked about this a lot on the podcast. There's a lot of you know we don't want too much telling, too much talking, talk, 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 right? Um, at this one has a lot of showing, not telling. There's a lot of uh, most of the conversations are pretty short, and there's a lot of stuff you learn just by what they're showing you. You know, nobody nobody says, "Oh damn, shorty killed a U.S. marshal."
0: That's true.
1: You know, they just roll them over and pull the shirt back, and there it is, and then everybody runs away, and you know, oh, he's screwed. (laughs) You know, they they don't spend time talking about it.
0: That's true, and if you weren't paying attention when they make that revelation then you wouldn't understand why everybody's freaking out because they 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 don't really talk about it that much other than later monty does say you know sugar will testify that you didn't know he was a marshal but if you weren't paying attention and yeah you and i used to talk about that all the time the importance of that show don't tell keep the audience engaged and i definitely think this movie does that
1: yeah it does and and you know, it is typical Western with the all the grandeur shots of the plains with the mountains in the background, but it's beautiful. It really is.
0: Yeah, and I kept looking at those shots wondering if we would be able to pull off those kinds of shots today or if we as a society or a civilization have marred those landscapes too, too much at mm. this point.
1: Well, I, I know you can still find them because we don't have, you know, a shot like that. You know, if you find the right angle, (laughs) there could be a, there could be a city just over the rise and, uh, you know, you don't (laughs) see it, but, um, I, I don't know. I, I do really like the, the feel of it. I mean, it even starts with that, you know, they're, they're cowboys. What do you do in the winter? You have to, you know, I guess you go out and, uh, you know, trap or hunt wolf or something to get pelts to, earn some money and have food for yourself and then you go back into the you show up when it's time for another herd and uh um, do it all over again
0: yeah well jumping back to the 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 relationship I, i really felt like probably one of my favorite moments in the movie is when they're having that serious conversation about their relationship and he you know this is after you know, his buddy has gotten married and he asks her, how come we didn't get married? And her response is, you know, you never asked me to. And that it it could have just been that quick bump, bump back and forth, but then it becomes an almost heartfelt conversation about it where both of them seem really touched at the notion that their relationship could go that direction. Although there's almost like this underlying fear in Monty's face about where things could go.
1: Yeah. 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 No, he's, I think he knows he can't do that. And he's trying to talk himself into it as, as what it feels like to me. And she's wanting to believe. Right. But even then when he backs off just a little bit and you start to find out how, what a stretch it would be. And, and you could tell that he's, he's feeling really bad about it, that she then, she kind of goes back to her, uh, you know, that she's resigned to that's what the relationship is going to be. And she comforts him.
0: Yeah, but it is resignation, as you said. I mean, there's almost there's a there's like an underlying heartbreak. Mm -hmm. And I mean, when when he gets the opportunity to take the job with the uh, the traveling road show uh, and tells her about it and and then tells her that he's not taking it. And she has that line about, well, I, I didn't think this would be tomorrow type thing. But you can you can sense her disappointment in it, even though that's the face she's putting on.
1: Right, right. Uh, that's exactly right. That's another one that I, I think she's an incredible actress. And I, I haven't seen a lot of stuff that she's in, but she is a very well-known French actress. And she and Lee Marvin together make those scenes really powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think the, the relationship between them while it's not a central focus of the movie really is an important one in exploring just how much the cowboy life means to Monty.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, it's, I, I love that connection. I love her, you know, she's a prostitute, but this little shack that she lives in, it's like decorated to the hill, you know, the original one with uh fancy, like wallpaper, I I'm thinking it's even like gold and green. Yeah. Just everything in there is is nice and kind of fancy it seems like. Right? She's really dressed it up. But when she's forced to move to Charlieville, that's that's all gone by the wayside and she's on a, a minimal subsistence marginal subsistence.
0: Well, but has it cuz the doctor even comments that you know, just even through it all, even when she was deteriorating in health, you know, she had that that really ornate jewelry box, you know, which held her prized treasures. And, and of course we see that it includes the money that Monty gave her, which means she never relied on the money that, that he gave her and, and, you know, a clipping of his hair. Um, but that to me is almost as important as how decorated her shack was.
1: It is. Uh, she saved that piece, but where she's living now is a bare bones room. Assuming that where where we see her, where she died, that was her room. And I think it is because Monty walks right to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I assumed it was. And I, I found that that was another really interesting angle to take the story, though, is that not only is this the death of the cowboy, but it's the death of other professions that might depend mm-hmm. on the cowboy. And I mean, her statement about being a prostitute, that you can't stay in one place because business becomes... Uh, I, I don't even remember what the line was, but the idea being that business is going to dry up if you stay in the same place because because people aren't moving on.
1: Right, right. The I was thinking about that even in terms of the hardware store. You know, Chet married into the hardware store, but that town is dying. You know, how long is that hardware store going to be there? It, it seems to me they don't really talk too much about that town, the original town, Harmony, but. It seems to me to be a town that's basically there to serve the ranchers in the area, and and their help. Now there may be some other some other business, but we don't get a good picture of that. You know, there's a hardware store, there's a barber shop, there's a bar, but it seems to be dying, right? Because the ranches are dying, so I kind of assume that's where most of their yeah the reason they were there.
0: Yeah, no, I that's, that was kind of my assumption as well. I mean, we we learn wh- even as early as, you know, like 10 minutes into the movie when Monty and Chet return from, from being out in the wild, all the ranches are essentially gone. They've all been bought up by this consolidated company. And by the end of the movie, the consolidated company just wants to fence off the land so that it's protected and theirs. But they're not going to do anything with it.
1: Well, you might start purchasing and breeding cattle, but you don't need anybody to herd them. You don't need anybody to do a roundup and drive them somewhere. You know, you've got the railroad now. Anyway, yeah. the and, and that strikes me now, too, as we were talking, that, you know, Chet is a guy who is watching what's going on around him and thinking about it and trying to think ahead a little bit. Monty is the guy that he's just living day to day doing what you do without really thinking about it, even when they ride into town that first time and Mr. Brennan tells them about, the, you know, these ranches going down, he wants to tell I want to talk to you guys. And Bonnie's like, nah, he just wants to get in and have a drink, play some cards. You don't want to think about what his future, you know? Right. So, right. whereas Chet's the one that's, that's yeah. Yeah. Come on over. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to talk. Yeah. So.
0: So the, both reviews brought up the bronc busting scene which is significantly more elaborate and destructive in the 1970 version than the Tom Selleck version. Uh, what are your thoughts on that scene?
1: Okay, so I'm assuming that it's it's like uh, from the time he gets on the horse to the time when it's, he walks it back to the corral, I think is, is between three and four minutes. Now the odds of that being able to carry on for that long, I I think it's like the old barroom fights they used to have in old westerns that you know they lasted forever, and it just wouldn't happen that way. But I love it. I absolutely love it. It's like the perfect symbol or, or metaphor for the end of the cowboys. He 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 rides the last unridable horse, and, uh, and and you know maybe in that way it's a little heavy handed, but I I still loved it. I absolutely loved it,
0: yeah, I enjoyed it. I do think it's a little a little hyperbolic, but I enjoyed watching it. I mean, it's I think you're right. It's kind of like a last hurrah. It's Monty's dedication to this task once he sets his mind on it. He's going to break this Bronc. that's it that then that's it's it's gonna he's gonna break it or it's going to kill him which there are several moments in that that you almost think that's the direction that are going to take it i almost take issue with him telling shorty about it later on because you know they have their final gunfight and he shoots shorty and that's like his final words to shorty is i finally rode that 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 bronc Mm -hmm. and it's it almost feels like a fuck you at his death. You know, well, like it's, it's, killing him wasn't enough. By no, the way, I, I accomplished what you couldn't.
1: <laughs> well, it's it's an odd relationship. You know, it's sort of like they're friends, even though they were somewhat adversaries. Even at the when they you know they were cowboys at the same place, uh, but they were friends and they'd known each other for a while. And even they disapproved of Shorty hanging with these other two guys. And when they found out that he'd robbed a bank and and that Shorty or that Rufus had robbed a bank and Shorty had killed this marshal, they're telling Shorty what he needs to do to to get his life turned around. They're trying to get him to turn himself in and tell the truth about what happened. And he didn't know it was a marshal. And, but then they finally, he, he's not going to do that. So they tell him to go south, you know, and try to get a job and save some money. And then when he rides off, they see the other two yahoos right up. And and they get this sad look on their faces, you know, like, you know, this is not going to go. So I think, you know, despite their sort of rivalry and their uh, mutual competition, maybe, that it was sort of like, I I got to kill you because you killed Chet. But we still kind of have this bond as having been cowboys together. That, that's the way I took it. I didn't take it as a in-your-face thing.
0: Yeah, and it's not delivered as an in-your-face thing, but it's just how it felt to me. But I totally, yeah, I mean, I think you're yeah, right. That's yeah. the way it should be interpreted. Is you know, we're still buds. I mean, he, he's not happy about having to face off against Shorty. Um, you mm-hmm. know, he's not happy that events have gone this way. Obviously, he's more upset about Chet's death than than having to face off against someone he consider a friend. But yeah, I mean, it's it's. Yeah, I mean I think you're right in the way that it's it's supposed to be interpreted. And, you know, I'm just an asshole. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it is kind of an in your face thing. <laughs> <laughs> and that that final scene too when when uh short and everything is happening so fast, right? I mean, I, I don't know what the time is between when he writes the Bronx and he finds out that Shorty killed Chet. I don't know what that like the time is. If that's, he he writes back and finds out when he gets back.
0: It's not long.
1: Yeah. Cause the next scene is, is, uh, you know, he goes back and talks to Martine and says, I, I can't do this. I can't, you know, spit on my whole life kind of thing, even though it'd be 30 bucks a week plus expenses. And, uh, then the next, I think literally like the next scene is, is, is when Check gets shot and then we see them, uh, are you going to go to the funeral? No, he's going to take off after Shorty, and I forget forget the point I was trying to make. <laughs> but he's there. He finds out about Martine's death, and he's there grieving. You know, and Shorty shouts up, and from that point on, you know, when they start that scene, there's something about. I I kind of mentioned the music as being by John Barry. I love the music in this. You know, it has this kind of grandiose Western. Theme that plays that that is kind of tender, but then the music they played during that uh, scene where where Monty's hunting Shorty, I thought was great. It built the tension for me, and it wasn't a lot to it. You know, it was your basic sort of bass low notes with some high things mixed in there. I know I'm, I probably shouldn't even try to describe it, but I, I just thought it was really good at setting the the tone for that scene.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. the The music. It didn't have me at first. I mean, it opens with, it's not quite a contemporary song, but it is a, a song sung by Mama Cass. Yeah. And a lot of the theme music throughout the movie is just an, you know, an instrumental version of that song. Mm-hmm. But you're right. When the, the music changes for that gunfight, it, it's, it's a very severe change from the music for the rest of the movie. But man, it, it fits the tone of the scene. And, and really, I, I totally dug that, that part of the music.
1: Well, and I think too, it's a very unadorned sort of shootout. You don't really get a fast draw, right?
0: Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's 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 not stylistic at all.
1: So, it's, and for me too, another reason this is really interesting is that uh, with John Barry uh, doing the music for this, he also did the music for Midnight Cowboy, which came out a year before that, and that had kind of a haunting harmonica theme that you could you could kind of see a connection to this i'm with you on the mama Cass song that's a little sappy for me uh, the <laughs> lyrics the lyrics for hal david i saw i noticed uh, who was a popular songwriter of the era or of the earlier era i would say but yeah john Berry's cool
0: all right what what have we not talked about that you'd like to talk about
1: Well, first off, Jack Schaefer, you know, Jack Schaefer's kind of an interesting character because he's legendary for Shane, right? I mean, at least that movie is legendary. And I always knew about the book. I bought the book from, you know, Scholastic Book Services when I was a youngster (laughs) in school and and read it back then. (laughs) Uh, There's a throwback.
0: Yeah, so to
1: me, it was a very famous well-known book but monty walsh is not a famous well-known book and neither is there was one other movie uh based on one of his books called the silver whip that has one of my favorite guys silver or uh, rory calhoun and dale robertson you know so a kind of a decent western cast but a really bad movie just a bad movie so (laughs) I, i think it's interesting i i love I love Shane, but I, I don't particularly care for the Silver Whip, and I love Monty Walsh, but he's just not well at that. He's basically one of those guys that he's known for Shane. Right. That's what everybody knows him for, at least in people that I know. Yeah, I I, I had seen some trivia, too, that, you know, you said Ebert gave it a good review, Ebert gave it four stars, but Gene Siskel gave it one. So his <laughs> is, is probably similar to the one you read. <laughs> And and I guess maybe the other thing that, I don't know if we made a big enough deal about it, but William Fraker was the cinematographer for Bullet, Rosemary's Baby, and a long list of other right. very well-known movies. Some not so good. The Island of Dr. Moreau, although I don't think the cinematography is, is usually the knock on that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Tombstone, <laughs> right? So there's there's... <laughs> <laughs> tombstone is another one you know that and there's another uh grand western right but but also movies like murphy's romance with i think that's burt reynolds and sally fields and uh sharky's machine that's another burt reynolds i believe the exorcist 2 looking for mr goodbar which is a very well-known movie of the 70s gator another burt reynolds he got hooked up with burt reynolds a lot painter wagon uh, so, yeah, this guy had a, a very successful career as a cinematographer, not not as much as a director, but as a cinematographer. And I think it shows.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, I I think visually, uh, you know, I mean, cinematography has changed, obviously, between 1970 and today. So I, I definitely there were there were scenes where I, I wondered how it would be shot today. But it is quite an interesting cinematic experience especially for 1970. Like the, the guy knows where to put his camera and how to set up the shots. And, and some of them are, are quite wonderful because of that. And The one that, that stood out mm-hmm. to me was the final charge of Joe Hooker. You know, that you see him running, but between the, the cinematography and the editing, you don't have to worry that the horse was in any real danger, but yet it still feels that tragic moment of Hooker's last ride.
1: Right. And, and I thought about that and the, uh, the Bronco Brock busting ride too, where, uh, the, the editing and the camera angles are key to making it not too obvious when Lee Marvin's double was on the horse and when he wasn't, uh, they actually did a really a pretty good job of that.
0: All right. Well, let's head into the closing credits here. Uh, got two quick little games for you. Uh, the first up is the algorithm says these are, uh, movies selected by various algorithms that say, if you like Monty Walsh, you'll like these movies. So this is kind of a lightning round for responses for you. Uh, I'll tell you the movie. You tell me if you like it. You don't like it. Most of them, I can totally see how they're connected to Monty Walsh. But in case you don't, you're, if you're wondering what's up with the algorithm, you can always, you know, posit that as well. Uh, but it's, it's just quick responses to this list of movies. Okay. All right. So first up, The Spikes Gang.
1: I've never seen it.
0: Oh, okay. Prime uh, Prime Cut.
1: Oh, I don't think so. And, and I think that that's there because of uh, Lee Marvin.
0: Okay. Interesting. All right. The Culpepper Cattle Company. Uh, that's, that's okay. Not as good as this, but okay. All right. Seven Men From Now.
1: I haven't seen that one
0: either. I haven't seen any of these, so you're ahead of me already. Cat Baloo.
1: Uh, yeah, Cabal is a great movie, but it's it's I think the only real relationship is Lee Marvin again. <laughs> it's a totally different movie, right? Right. But it's a fun fun film. Um, Pocket Money. That kind of fits in there with uh, Prime Cut. It's just kind of an odd film.
0: Yeah, I, I think the the lack of exposure Monty Walsh has may be why the algorithm is really focused on an actor or a director or that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so pocket money is, and is the time period, I think pocket money is Paul Newman and Lee Marvin. And I was thinking, I always get those two, I you know, strangely enough, I get that and uh, Prime Cut mixed up, which is uh, Lee Marvin and Gene Hackman.
0: Gotcha. Okay. All right. Rio Lobo.
1: Uh, I love Real Lobo. I don't know why that's connected. Very well-made John Wayne movie. Actually, a remake of one of his earlier films, and I, I'll i have a hard time thinking of what that is, uh, but with Dean Martin <laughs> and uh, I believe Jimmy Kahn has done that. The original had, in the Jimmy Kahn role, the original was Ricky Nelson. Okay. And they both have John Wayne. I'll th- I'll think of it here in a second because we we have to say which one it's a re- real Bravo. It's a remake of Real Bravo.
0: Oh, okay, all right, that makes sense. All right, a uh, little Tom Selleck in here for you, Quigley Down Under.
1: You know that's that's an okay film. I, I, I if I liked it if I watched it now I probably wouldn't like it because I that might be the beginning of his. He kind of went to this uh, to me sort of sort of this shrug, low voice. I don't know version of acting. And I can't hardly stand to watch him anymore. He just kind of, uh, he gets a big sigh and says something, you know, and I'm just like.
0: <laughs> for me, the charm of Quickly Down Under is, you know, Alan Rickman. So because I'm, I'm never going to turn down Alan Rickman as a villain.
1: Ah, uh, OK, well, oh, there you go. There you go. I liked it when I saw it. I just haven't seen it for a long time.
0: All right. Two more. Olzana's Raid.
1: I believe that's Burt Lancaster. And that is an OK movie.
0: All right. And the last one is Paint Your Wagon.
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I hate that movie.
0: Really? Okay. Interesting. I I have never seen that one either, but I do have it in my DVD collection.
1: <laughs> well, let's take these two great actors, Clint Eastwood and Lee, Mervin, Lee Marvin, and just kind of castrate them by making them sing. And they really can't. You know, it's, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I understand it's quite terrible. All right. We always uh, end with a pop quiz for multiple choice questions based on the movie. And based on a couple of things you've said, even in the last 10 minutes, I think you're going to do quite well on this. But uh, if you're ready, here we go. Noke doke. Number one, Roger Ebert gave the movie a four star review. How did his Chicago rival slash partner noted critic Gene Siskel differ from Ebert with his review? (laughs) A one star, B two stars, C three stars or D four stars.
1: Uh, one star. And I want to point out, you did not send me these questions ahead of time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got that one right. I mean, you said it like five minutes ago. I'm sitting here going, okay, well, there's that question. Uh, no, I don't send the questions ahead of time. What, what, what joy would there be in that? <laughs> uh, number two, Lee Marvin, a creature of vice, was banned from which of his habits while filming Monty Walsh? A, smoking, B, drinking, C, womanizing, or D, gambling?
1: I'm going to say drinking.
0: Yep. He was specifically banned from drinking while they were filming the movie. Although based on an excerpt from a book about Marvin that I was looking through last night, I, it doesn't sound like they were successful in getting him to stop.
1: <laughs> I'm guessing he's pretty resourceful. <laughs>
0: All right. Number three, the movie is loosely based on the novel, the same name by Jack Schaefer. It seems interesting they would option the novel, but stray from the story, especially after another movie had found so much success based on which Schaefer novel? A. Mavericks, B. Old Ramon, C. The Plainsman, or D. Shane? Well, Shane, of course. Yep, absolutely. Of course, you know. Shane was just recently kind of in my awareness because uh, you know it's in the the AFI top one hundred list, which one of the podcasts I listened to was talking about. Uh, which again, I find it interesting that Shane would be so popular and this one wouldn't be. I I, I don't know. I, I I'm happy you introduced me to this movie.
1: And incidentally, Jack Palance is in Shane as well.
0: Right, right.
1: He's, he's the gunslinger that uh, Shane shoots.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right, last question. Number four. Despite coming far into the career of Lee Marvin, this movie marks what is pretty universally agreed upon as a first for the actor in a movie. What was this an on screen first for? A, referencing an outhouse. B, not shooting at a target. C, shooting a love scene. Or D, appearing with Jack Palance?
1: I'm going to say appearing with Jack Palance.
0: No, he had done several other movies with Jack Palance already prior oh, okay, to this. Okay. Uh, this was his first love scene. Oh, holy cow. <laughs> Still, three out of four, not bad for our pop quiz. Now, I got a... Yeah, that probably
1: wasn't a love scene. That uh, uh, Just a, a a short story. The, f- the first nude scene I ever saw in a movie <laughs> was a sort of neo-noir film called Point Blank starring Lee Marvin and Angie Dickinson. And Angie Dickinson is changing in the lit bathroom and lee marvin standing out in the dark hotel room and so you see the silhouette of angie dickinson nude that that's the first nude scene i ever saw
0: i'm astonished you can remember that i can't think of the first nude scene <laughs> oh. i saw in a movie <laughs> well, they were they were fewer and far between <laughs> <back then>. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jeff, where can people find you? What do you want to promote? I know you've got several podcasts to talk about.
1: Well, go to gruesomemagazine.com, and we've got a group of podcasts called Decades of Horror, and uh, we cover like everything up through uh, nineteen eighty nine. There's a decades of or nineteen eighties, decades of or nineteen seventies, and decades of or the classic era. And each one of those comes out every two weeks. And then I'm also on the Gruesome Magazine podcast where we review a couple of new to streaming or video on demand movies. Uh, and that we are we are in the process of going video. On i
0: saw that
1: so you could catch the the gruesome magazine podcaster on our youtube channel and 1970s uh, we did a video that's we have to wait for some software upgrades before we do the other two but anyway it's uh it's lots of fun i i uh, you know i felt like i was out in the middle of nowhere iowa with no one around to talk horror with until i found these guys and now i've got plenty of people to talk to, uh, about, about these movies.
0: Well, and you're a great voice to have on the show. I, as I said, I really uh, always enjoyed talking movies with you, even when we didn't agree on the final verdict of a film. Uh, one of the things I, I enjoyed talking with you about is I, I feel like you're, you're very respectful about other film critics and their opinions, and you're willing to listen to other opinions. And, and that doesn't happen that often In our film critique community, unfortunately, so many people go in with the attitude of I'm right and here's why. And you go in with the attitude of this is my opinion, but I'm willing to hear yours. And that's, I think, a very valuable trait. Well,
1: I appreciate that. But I my feeling is that our opinions and our views, especially of this. I mean, we're talking about art on whatever level it's at that. My opinions and feelings about it are based on my entire life's experiences. And so I'm going to like stuff that you're not going to like. You're going to like stuff I'm not going to like. And I've had people ask me questions, why do you like that? And I I might have a hard time answering it. It just, what I usually say is it resonates. It just resonates with me, something about my experience, but I could watch this movie Hotel Hell is one of those, uh, <laughs> which a lot of people don't like, um, but I, 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 that just resonates with me.
0: It's a bit of a far cry from Monty Walsh. <laughs> it is.
1: It is. But I, I appreciate you saying that, and I enjoyed uh, doing that with you as well, and I always got uh, insights that I didn't think of, so I miss that.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and introducing me to this movie. And uh, good luck out there with Gruesome Magazine, and I hope to chat movies with you more in the future. That
1: would be great. Thank you.
0: So that does it for this week, but you can keep the conversation going throughout the week on social media. Share your thoughts about Monty Wall, or maybe tell me about a movie you'd like to come on the show and talk about. You can find me at Talon Hess on Twitter and also on Letterbox. That's T-A-L-N-H-E-S-S. You can find the show at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, on Facebook where I have not seen this podcast. And of course, you can always email me at have not seen this at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week, which takes place in an Antarctic outpost where not everyone is exactly what he seems. This podcast is available through all major podcast sources. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, as is sharing the podcast with a friend and spreading the love. And if you like World of Warcraft or other Blizzard entertainment games, be sure to check out my other podcast, Citizens of Azeroth, a World of Warcraft podcast, also available through all major podcast sources. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song, and thanks to Jeff Moore for providing this week's conversation. Until next week, I'm Rave Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. Be kind to each other.